0: and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You've probably
1: already gotten your first bug bite of the season,
0: but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body, but it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses,
1: but a thousand senses.
0: This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday.
1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, a few messages from our sponsor. And the first message is from The Message. Which is a podcast from GE Podcast Theater and our friends at Panoply. The story of the message is the story of Nikki Tomlin, a PhD in linguistics from the University of Chicago, who is working on deciphering an alien message. That's an alien message from over 70 years ago. It's an eight episode series. You can get it on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Listen along as Tomlin and a team of cryptologists try and figure out this message delivered from outer space over 70 years ago. Also, sponsoring the show this week, Realty Shares. You work hard for your money, so you should get a solid return on your investments without doing a lot of work. Check out Realty Shares at RealtyShares.comslash longform. It's an online real estate marketplace that lets you invest in private real estate investments, vetted by investment professionals. You can invest as little as a grand. Go ahead and check it out. Realtyshares.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello and welcome
0: to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined today by Max Linsky and Aaron
1: Lammer from longform.org. Hey, I appreciate that .org. I don't want people going to the wrong longform. Check, check it out on your internet websites. Yeah. Go there. Browse it. On the internet. I, uh, I flew Delta yesterday, yeah. and in the, the safety video at the beginning of Delta, they say, visit us on the World Wide Web. It's classy. It is classy. When are they going to stop
0: doing those cutesy uh, safety videos? That's Never. gone too far. Never
1: they did they did get away from the um you know that like red-haired woman who looked like kind of like a cyborg she's not on there anymore i miss her all right okay anyway uh kurt anderson he's the guest Do we, <laughs> have i had any bro i'm oh, sorry have we not gotten there yet <laughs> evan who'd you interview
0: this week who is who is kurt, kurt i'm anderson. not gonna tell you <laughs> We're going to turn this into a quiz show in which Aaron just, <laughs> just jumps in with the answers. If you buzz fast enough, you can just say all that right. I... So Cam Andrews. <laughs> I did, in fact, interview Kurt Anderson for this podcast. Yeah, sorry uh, about it. Sorry to blow that That's up. all right. It was my surprise, but uh, now everyone knows. Uh, Kurt Anderson is... Uh, everybody knows what Kurt Anderson is, right? He's uh, the founder of Spy Magazine. He is the host of Studio 360 and a bunch of things in between. And... Uh, he is uh, really fun to talk to him right now because the past Spy Magazine obsession with uh, Donald Trump has sort of like come to its ultimate fruition, and we talked a little bit about that.
1: Awesome! This Many is a, other things. He has been on the list from day one. and I'm, uh, kudos is, spy, to is Spy Magazine just not not online?
0: It is. It's in the Google like Google scanned archive kind of thing. I think is where you'll find it.
1: You there. You never hear more about something that that isn't easy to access than you hear about Spy Magazine, I feel like.
0: Yeah, that's. I went back and read a bunch of old ones, and everyone says that Spy Magazine was the uh, progenitor of all of these styles of humor, and when you go back and read it, you find out that it's true. How about sponsors?
1: Aaron, if you found out something that was true, and you want to tell a lot of people about it. Well, the way that the most of the world communicates is email, but you want to communicate with a bunch of them at once, so you can't use your own Gmail, so you, I guess, would need an email newsletter, which might lead you to Mailchimp. It is simply the best email newsletter provider for businesses of all kinds and all sizes. Up to 2,000 people can be on your mailing list without you even putting in a credit card. So it will grow as your business grows, MailChimp. But for now, here's Evan and Kurt Anderson. Kurt, welcome
0: to The Long Form Podcast. Pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you being on. You, as I I mentioned when I emailed you to ask you to be on, uh, you have like possibly a strange role in my family related to anyone else who knows your work, which is that one time I went to this dinner party uh, and I never go to... I feel like this is the only time in my life I've been to a dinner party like this where there were a bunch of people, most of whom I didn't know, some of whom were more but sort of like prominent New York media people. I think the poetry editor from The New Yorker was there and other people. And then we played a game of celebrity... And you and I were teamed up randomly on a team. And I thought, I am teamed up with Kurt Anderson in a game of celebrity. I'm going to win this game. And that's not what happened. And we lost. We lost. Not only did we lose, we lost to my wife, who was paired up with someone who... I don't remember who they were, but it's not someone you expected to like know everything about culture. Yeah. as I expected you to. Know. So,
2: I, so we met, and I disappointed you
0: promptly. So that's <laughs> right? good. So this is—I feel like I should come here and sort of like take revenge somehow. Well, there you go. Um, go for it. <laughs> but you've got an hour. <laughs> all right. So the uh, there's a lot I wanted to ask you about, but what, uh, perhaps a good place to start, which I know people have been asking about recently, is like Donald Trump is obviously having this incredible moment in the presidential campaign. There was another debate last night. And as a result of that, uh, your past relations with jo- Donald Trump are sort of having a moment. Yeah. And people are referring to the old spy magazine take on Trump, even endlessly quoting what you called him, which was short fingered vulgarian, <laughs> was the most famous thing that we called him. Yes. Among many other things, I went yeah. back and read all of the Donald Trump coverage. But what was it about
2: Trump at the time? that made him such a figure of fascination for Spy? Well, when Spy began publishing in 1986, uh, we conceived of it as a magazine for New Yorkers, sort of about New York. And and Donald Trump, who was not even that well-known in New York at the time, uh, came on our radar, and we thought, man, this 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 guy is amazing the 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 80s as we came to know them had barely started and here was this guy who who embodied all of its most meretricious v-
1: vulgar <laughs> v-
2: um jerky aspects and we thought wow let's 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 see what happens let's make him one of our characters that we will sort of keep bothering and keep paying attention to and uh and so we did i mean because he was he was, he was both fresh and seemed, as I say, to sort of define a certain kind of New York as it was emerging in the 1980s. And uh, Spy started in...
0: 86. 86 October yeah. 1st, 1986. It, so had he written The Art of the Deal? I
2: thought, uh, he me? hadn't written The Art of the Deal. No, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. We were, we were slightly ahead of the Donald Trump curve. And, uh, you know, um, we bought low. <laughs> <laughs> but so...
0: I mean, spy gets referenced all the time in a variety of circumstances, but this is such a fascinating one because you specifically at the time speculated about him running for president and almost sort of begged him to run for president. Well, uh,
2: well and that's the thing, as, as, as when he announced uh, his campaign in June that nobody thought was a cam- real campaign... Um, and people referred to the fact that he had flirted with running the Times, said he flirted with running as recently as two thousand or as long ago as two thousand. And I, I thought I think he flirted with it back when I was paying attention to him and indeed I went back and looked at old spies and yes, in nineteen eighty seven uh, I'd written a piece in Spy about his flirtation at the time. And 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 uh in a in a half serious, half ironic way, like everybody felt again this this summer, I did. Sort of send a little open letter to him to say yes, yes, go ahead, do it. Trump run for president.
0: So now, do you feel uh, do you feel prescient or do you f- just feel aghast?
2: Both, as I often do. <laughs> uh, um, uh, not prescient so much. No, not prescient because I never. I guess I never really thought it, it would I, it would happen. Um, but I do feel it, it is. It, it's just strange to 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 have this this figure, this cartoonish figure that. We started paying attention to and slightly obsessing over almost thirty years ago twenty five or thirty <laughs> years ago uh suddenly having his this this most extraordinary improbable uh, day in the sun so it, it's uh it's not exactly prescience but it's Whoa, I was a student of this guy that everybody every day is talking about when I was young enough to be a student. And <laughs> there's also there's something so 80s even now about his... totally. the, the, the obsessive quality of his self-promotion. I mean, yes, he's brazen. We know he's brazen and shameless. But the fact that he keeps mentioning the art of the deal, that he keeps mentioning that he went to the Wharton School, that he keeps mentioning that he's rich, all that stuff. Is is uh, it? It's just it's it's extraordinary. I mean the the thing that amazed me at the time and us at the time and why I think we spent so much time uh, examining him was one of the reasons is I, I had never uh, seen anyone in public life who who was so obviously dependent on desperate for attention. I mean yes, of course, all performers, actors, everybody likes attention. But not of any kind all the time, as much as possible, which which really was his mo uh, from from then and now. That he's getting more than he's ever had uh, at a level and intensity and persistence than he's ever had. He must be. I mean, he has achieved his dream. (laughs) He's he's found his moment. It
0: seems like so. uh, Trump seemed like a good way to get into talking about spy a little bit. Do you ever get tired of talking about Spy magazine?
2: Uh, I don't talk about it that much. Uh, Not until until June, thanks to (laughs) Donald Trump, I, I, you know, not that much. I mean, you know, people come up to me and say, oh, I love Spy, and and every now and then, somebody in social media will say something and talk to me in a few months if this Trump <laughs> thing doesn't end. And I, I, by then, I probably will will be tired. But no, not so much. The Spy has fascinated me not just as uh, someone
0: who's who's read it and feels you know influenced by it, as a lot of journalists I think do, especially people who want to start magazines. But just to see it anytime anyone starts a magazine. They say, it'll be like spy meets this. Like you could probably (laughs) look at a hundred magazine business plans. And they're all like that. So I kind of wanted to go back and find out what you felt you wanted it to be before it started. First, give me a little background. I know that you grew up in in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. What sort of was your path to coming into the New York media?
2: Uh, I grew up in Nebraska. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, went to public high school in a very normal, lovely, trouble-free uh, life. Uh, early on, though, uh, realized sort of had my little kid meter gyroscope set toward the east I kind of knew I wanted to live in a city as soon as I visited Chicago and New Orleans as a little kid I thought this is this is where I want to be and and uh, went to Harvard and then uh, came to New York without a job uh, thinking just in this kind of not lemming like way but this this way of oh New York is where I want to you know if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, I said to myself. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, New York just seemed like the place to be. And uh, and as it's turned out, it, it has been. So I got a job writing in television news. Then I got a job writing at Time Magazine. And then I, I where I met my friend Graydon Carter, uh, who was a writer at Time Magazine. And, and we started getting to know each other and talking about life and magazines we'd loved and magazines we no longer loved. And why don't we have a magazine now that we love like we did when we were younger, and and then just sort of as a lark, began inventing, what would be our favorite magazine? What wouldn't it do? What would it do? And that became Spy, not really thinking, and let's start it, until we had been talking about it for maybe a year. One thing we thought, because we'd both been in New York at that point for uh, five years or so, and and had lots of journalist friends, and, and would hear these great stories that they would tell us about their reporting that never made its way into print. And and we thought, well, well why is that? Why, why couldn't we do a magazine where we would tell the truth, not to be too grand and self-righteous, but to tell these great stories about people and events and how the world works that weren't getting play elsewhere? And that would be funny. And and so this hybrid of journalism and research and reporting and uh, a sort of satirical sensibility was the notion there is and was uh, this magazine um, Private Eye in England that mm-hmm. was doing a, a cousin thing, but not exactly what we had in mind, uh, but nothing here. And uh, so that's uh, so we one thing led to another. And and it being the 80s, there were suddenly a lot of people our age and a little older who had made a lot of money in the stock market and could throw $50,000 or $100,000 our way. And we raised money and started a magazine.
0: I was looking back through all of these old issues and sort of like the ways of describing people, like like sort of like, you know, short-fingered Bulgarian Bulgarian. or overcompensatingly masculine producer. Like nobody kind of like got away. Socialite
2: (laughs) war criminal Henry Kissinger, one (laughs) of my favorites.
0: Yeah. And was that something that came out of your and Graydon Carter's writing styles or styles of looking at the world or how did that sort of develop?
2: Well the overall sensibility certainly was some hybrid of our yes our our ways of looking at the world and, and, and the human comedy in New York and all the rest plus our other early uh, collaborators Susan Morrison who's now at the New Yorker George Keller who's now at the New York Times Bruce Handy who's at Vanity Fair and elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, all of us together created this sort of sensibility voice. I mean, until we did it, it's not as though we, we had created a, a prototype or pilot. We just started saying, here's a bunch of good ideas. Let's try them. And and then we you know started messing around and over-editing people's uh, manuscripts until we got <laughs> uh, a set of voices we liked. I mean, the, the specific thing of the, these epithets of of short-fingered vulgarian and bosomy-dirty-book writer and all the rest... <laughs> <laughs> um, were were essentially uh, spoofy versions of what Time Magazine had had begun had done when it started in the twenties and thirties and forties. Hmm. They they created these like you know uh, Beetlebrowed Commie so and so epithets, which we found antiquated and hilarious what once that they no longer did that and we were both working there in the 80s and we thought oh that that would be a funny thing to do similarly we 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 were interested in in graphs and charts that were both real and kind of parodied the whole idea of infographics <laughs> which was also drawn in a certain way in a certain uh, uh, were kind of half parodies of what Time Magazine did as well. So, mm. so we were, you know, uh, it, it was a combination of our sensibility and, in in a kind of way that one saw later, sees later in things like the Daily Show, a kind yeah. of a parodic but real version of an existing news format. Feels sort of fearless, like. I can't believe they did that
0: and expected to get away with it. Even you guys did a sort of form of pranks, uh, sending billionaires 25-cent checks and seeing if they would cash them and that sort of thing. Yeah. And was the environment inside that that magazine one of, uh, we'll never
2: work in this town again? Well, yes, essentially. And, and we, we came up with a our, our slogan at the beginning before we ever had a magazine uh, and we put up, You know, uh, uh, posters around the city and had T-shirts that said this: "Smart, fun, funny, fearless." So so we took we we took fearlessness seriously, and then had to because we made it part of our 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 motto. We didn't think of it as a stepping stone to other things, to you know, being editor of Vanity Fair or editor of New York Magazine or any of the things that any of us have become. We we kind of kept going out on the limb and kept going on the limb, and we're this far out. Let's just. Keep going. I mean, we thought we were burning bridges permanently.
0: Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like these people have gone all over the place and succeeded. The sort of spy alumni in this way that you would not have expected if you read the magazine. You would think these people—they're mocking the people yeah. that eventually they would end up
2: uh, running those magazines. It's true. No, we no, honestly. I mean, I mean, there was a. I suppose there was a certain point after, you know, we started breaking even after three years, and 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 we became, you know, there was some patina of glamour attached and heat and all that. And I suppose at that point, people began thinking like, well, maybe, maybe this isn't the end of the you know, <laughs> the crazy gorilla pirate ship we're all going to sail on forever. Um, but certainly for the first few years, it was just let's just do what's interesting and funny and other people aren't doing and let the chips fall. <laughs>
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put uh, Evan and Kurt on pause for a second and just tell you a little bit more about our sponsors this week. First up is Prudential. And let's just be honest, you and I, here for a second. Right now, there is probably a decision that you are putting off. There's definitely like a bunch of decisions that I am putting off. I am a uh, professional procrastinator. I'm really, really very good at it. But there's one decision that you are putting off i'm putting off and we really just need to face it and that is saving for retirement our brains are hardwired to avoid thinking about the future specifically when uh there's hard things in the future but it's time to deal go to bringyourchallenges.com and you'll learn more about procrastination and the way our brains work and you'll also learn about the benefits of saving for retirement there's some nuance to it but uh the big idea it's not fun to be old and broke So go to bringyourchallenges.com and start uh, facing your future. Thanks very much to Prudential for sponsoring the show. Thanks also to Masterclass. Masterclass is a brand new way to learn online. You can take courses from people at the absolute top of their fields, acting with Dustin Hoffman, tennis with Serena Williams, singing with Christina Aguilera, photography with Annie Leibovitz. It's amazing. And they've also got a course with James Patterson writer of 19 best-selling books. Patterson will walk you through his entire process from outlining to writing to marketing the book. Learn from the best with Masterclass. Courses are just 90 bucks and you get lifetime access. Check it out now, masterclass.com slash longform. That's masterclass.com slash longform. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Kurt and Evan.
0: I read a sort of recollection you did uh, of Clay Felker and uh-huh. Clay Felker's original New York magazine. Yeah. You just mentioned earlier sort of Donald Trump as like the character. and You sort of described Felker's New York as almost like a novel about New York in which there are these characters. And it seems like Trump was that. He was like the main character of a story that you were telling about New York. Yes, Is that a, a story that's still the same story today or was that a particular 80s
2: well, it's a, it's a good question. You would think it was a particular eighty story were it not for the fact that the leading uh, Republican presidential candidate is one of those characters. <laughs> no, I mean, just as New York Magazine, when Clay Falker began it in 1968, uh, was telling a story of its time in that, in that sense. Our, you know, we were telling the story of the uh, late 80s and 90s, which was, a, which was a, again, we were lucky in so many ways. We were lucky that it was uh, this moment when people had money to invest because- it was a it was this new boom time we were we were lucky that it came sort of just as baby boomers were all adults and kind of sort of starting to run the world and the the anti-establishment let's make fun of the world part of the baby boomer sensibility could be kind of we could become embodiments of that to a certain uh-huh. degree david letterman had just started uh his show um so the timing was lucky and as it turns out it was the end of the Print magazine age. I mean, you know, you know, modern print magazine age started some, t- you know, early twentieth century, and and then when the internet came, it ended, and so we got in on the, you know, last uh, decade or two of it, and to the degree we were conscious of not that it was about to end, we didn't know the internet was going to kill print, but <laughs> but we were kind of extruding New Yorker. Tropes and Time Magazine tropes, and 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 we were we were kind of uh, using stuff that had been, you know, the great and talented people had done before us, and and subverting them. It was uh, so that that was why one of the reasons we were telling the particular set of stories we were, and then of course within a couple of years it was no longer a New York Ma- New York Monthly as we used to call it on the cover, but it 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 sort of organically became this more national magazine and. We could, you know, we suddenly then found Michael Ovitz in Los Angeles to, <laughs> to bother and make fun of and and people elsewhere. Yeah. When you sold it, did you feel
0: like you wanted to be done with it personally or it was sort of like, it's a good time to sell it. Let's go ahead and sell it.
2: Uh, both. I mean, there was, we, we had been... Uh, Early after only a couple of years, uh, we had been approached by Condé Nast actually to sell it to them. Hmm. There's some disagreement among the founders about who wanted to do what at the time, but <laughs> um, we didn't. We decided not to and said, "No, we're still this. We're still growing. This is still early. We should be independent." Then, after three and a half years, uh, I think we decided we're making money and we're doing pretty well, and people pay attention we should look for strategic investors. Um, and then, in the middle of trying to partly or wholly cash out, the uh, a terrible recession happened mm-hmm. that began <laughs> sort of, uh, not only began in New York media, but pretty much with Spy Magazine, because it, it had no, you know, we weren't part of a larger organization. It was easy for uh, advertisers trying to cut budgets to cut this weird little magazine that they had been sp- uh-huh. buying lots of ads in. So it was a combination of of wanting to, you know, of of a of a willful exit strategy and like, wow, this is exhausting. I, I wouldn't mind doing something else now. Yeah. because uh, it was really exhausting in every sense. Uh, both. I mean, we we it was a very labor intensive magazine. You know, it took a ter- certain toll on the on one's emotional bandwidth and. Or I say it's soul, huh. you know. Why do you Why do you say that? Well, it just uh, because you know the stakes, in in its little way, seemed high, and people were pissed, got pissed off, yeah. and you know threw drinks at you. And and uh, if your mode is satire, you know you sometimes do step over the line here and there. Uh, now, fortunately, and again, one of the other ways that I'm glad we did it when we did it was we only did it once a month, uh, so we had time to. To to carefully choose who and how and what we did and and try to get the caliber of satirical artillery just right, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're in the game today and doing it every hour and every day to maximize clicks, I, I that would that I wouldn't want to be doing that. There was a wonderful luxury to be kind of creating this artisanal thing once a month. I guess it seems quaint. Now. It does seem quaint, uh-huh. and and uh, and I was. Uh, again, I just feel very fortunate to to have been part of the the late days of that time when that could be done. Uh, who threw a drink on you? My good friend, actually Esther Newberg, uh, who uh, an, a, who's an agent, wasn't then and is now an agent at ICM. Uh huh. <laughs> it was friendly. Let's say uh, yeah.
0: As friendly as a drink throwing can be, I guess. Um, how difficult was it to watch it continue as something that you'd invested your soul into in some way?
2: I left uh, after doing it for about six, six and a half years. I mean, basically, I didn't, I, I didn't pay much attention to it. Mm-hmm. I, the moment I left, I mean, uh, I didn't look at it much. I didn't read it. I was, I was done. Uh, I know you ended up running New York Magazine, yeah. but was that the sort of natural thing to no, do? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I had never edited anything or been an editor before I, we started Spy, and and I thought, okay, I I, I had as good a go at this as I could. Uh, I It wasn't as if I considered myself a I'm a professional magazine editor, and I will go prof- edit other magazines professionally. I didn't know what I would do, frankly. and. Uh, and But then, in fairly a fairly short period of time, um, when I was still sort of figuring out what to do next, the people who then owned New York Magazine came and offered me the job of editing that. And so I said, sure, why not? This is a magazine that has been a great magazine, and maybe I could make it great in a new way. Do you feel like you did that? I did. I mean, in the very brief, <laughs> less than three years time I had to do it, sure. I, 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 yeah, I think by the... Worldly measures, you know, it sold more ads, sold more copies, all that. And uh, the term of art at the time that people used a lot and that the owners said when they talked to me about it that they wanted, they wanted more edge in the magazine. They wanted more edge in the magazine. (laughs) I said, oh, okay. I I think I can, I think I know what you mean. I'll give you edge. I'll give you edge. And uh, I gave them a little too, more edge than they bargained for, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did you did you ever
0: get the sort of full story? I've
2: read this and that, where yeah. you
0: assume that uh, you were fired because you were running a story that ran afoul of one of the owner's connections.
2: Well, I I, I think it was more than one stories that the Uber owner, Mr. Henry Kravis, uh, objected to. Uh, I think I could be surprised and I could have it all wrong, but I would say with. Uh, above ninety percent uh, confidence that that's what happened. Yeah, so it was not that kind of edge. That that, that wasn't
0: the edge they were looking no. for.
2: No. Well, and for instance, when he uh, at some point uh, during my editorship uh, invited me to his apartment to have breakfast, at which he wanted to, he suggested to me that that New York Magazine simply not cover uh, the financial industry in Wall Street, and uh, that was when I had my first clue that hmm, maybe we have a different idea of what New York Magazine should be. <laughs> Well, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm curious in a general sense, when I look at the variety of things that you've done, and I mm. would say succeeded at, uh, novel writing, running magazines, yeah. radio, yeah. how much of that is you sort of move from one thing to another based on finding something new and interesting, or part of a, a sort of grander idea that you have of, I want to... Uh, experiments in different mediums or I want to explore these different things over the course of time.
2: Um, it beca- you know, certainly at the beginning there was no plan, strategy, grand dream. It was, oh, this. I met this guy. We ha- had this idea for a magazine. We decided to start it. I mean, most of it, certainly starting Spy, other other things, uh, entrepreneurial things I've started, has just been a matter of, oh, we can do that. That's interesting. That sounds cool. That's not being done. Let's do that. When I started writing novels uh, and publishing novels, which was after right after I got fired from new york uh, that was that was more a return to an earlier youthful dream hmm. I, you know I, in college and right after college i'd messed around thinking I was writing a novel uh, that thank God I never tried to publish and <laughs> and and then got you know had a job had another job and another job and then uh when I suddenly had this uh, year off, and, and I was uh, 40 years old, I thought, well, I'm, you know, I can't keep thinking, yeah, one day I'll do this. It's now or never. So so that was the only time where, where it was this very specific I think I may be able to do this. I think I might uh, enjoy doing this. Now's the time to try it. And, and otherwise, it was uh, it was, yeah, it was just kind of opportunistic glee and uh, finding friends that we enjoyed messing around together and 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 dreaming up things together.
0: And even in in the novels, I mean, Turn of the Century is so contemporary, sort of near future at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then you turn around and re- wrote a r- historical novel. Is that too just sort of uh, something that was hanging about that you knew you always wanted to do, or you just thought ah, I'm just gonna tur- I'm just gonna turn this around and and do something? You really mean the different. switch
2: from doing this near future contemporary thing to doing this? Yeah, circle? it just
0: seemed like uh, Turn of the Century was your first novel yeah. it was very successful from what i can tell yeah. it was incredibly well reviewed critically acclaimed and then you could have just followed that up with a yeah. basically
2: some sort of not sequel but a, a similar, similar type thing. of book yeah 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 i guess part of me wanted to change or raise the bar to try to try to You know, make it more challenging, which is weird because I I don't think of myself as somebody who just like always has to do make it harder and be tougher. I don't think of myself that way. But that was indeed uh, one of the reasons I I wrote a novel about 1848 rather than the day after tomorrow.
0: It sounds like wrapped up in that is at least a confidence that, well, I'll try this and uh, if it doesn't work out, that's okay.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, and and connected to that is the fact that I never thought, as a young person, I never thought of myself as a risk taker. If I taken a, if I had taken a survey at age twenty three about my my uh, aversion or comfort with risk, I, I don't think I would have rated myself highly. Then I did this risky thing that shouldn't have succeeded and should have failed quickly. Uh, starting this magazine, and and uh, it did encourage me to think like, eh, how bad can it be if it fails? Mm. And sometimes these long shots work. So. Fuck it, try yeah. it. And also, uh, I re- you know I don't think. I mean, I'm not without anxiety, and you know, in the middle of a book, you think it sucks, and maybe it does, and and all those things. It's not like I have some surpassing self confidence at all. But you can you can game things, and one games things, but you can't in the end game anything very well. And oh, if I do this, it's going to mean this for my career. I better not do that because it's going to mean that. I think that's folly, and mm-hmm. so you know, doing what looks like the most fun and the best use of your time for the next year or two is sort of my only real governor in terms of making choices. That's that seems like a pretty pretty good guiding philosophy. It's mostly worked. Um, well, I want to talk about
0: what, an, another thing that you started, and uh, the context for it is that I I was reading your old. You both had a column in the New Yorker in like late '90s, kind of. And then you had a column in New York in right. like mid to mid 2000s, 2006, yeah. 2007. Yeah. I was reading these New Yorker, New Yorker stories, and you wrote this one in '98 called "The Digital Bubble." <laughs> yes, literally, the subhead of this story is "Waking Up from the New Media Pipe Dream," and I read this and I thought <laughs> this is prescient. Like this, you had nailed it. Like there is a bubble. Yeah, these newspaper companies don't know what they're doing on the web. Media doesn't
2: know what they're doing on the web. It's all just going Wall up Street and, going up. and journalists are too besotted of this because they use computers every day, unlike anyone else. Right. Yeah, right. You even have Louis Rosetto, the founding
0: uh, editor, founder of Wired, who sort of was like getting out of the game and people not knowing what the possible business model could be. So I read this thinking this is, was incredibly prescient. Like all of this came to fruition or or came to an end uh, a couple years later. But meanwhile. A year and some time later, you started a digital media company, Inside.com, or what became Inside.com. What happened between the writing of this piece and the founding of that uh, digital media Evan and I contain (laughs) multitudes,
2: okay? (laughs) Um, Consistency is the hobgoblin of whomever. Uh, You can have true, large uh, conceptions of things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're individually going to behave according to that perception. And and nor did I say and therefore nobody should try to do this. Mm. Uh, but it's it's a it's a good point and I've thought about it many times myself. And so so we start this thing called we raise the money and start this thing called inside.com to cover media and entertainment worlds. And it was you and Michael Hirshhorn mostly. And me who, and Michael Hershorn were the main people and David Carr was one of David our Carr first hires a- and and other great people. And it just seemed like this seems like a good idea. And and nobody else was doing it. And uh as it turned out, it was uh, crazily easy in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine to raise money to do this, and uh, so it looked like fun of course the, the the digital bubble that I had written about in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight began popping the day like the day literally the day before we closed on our uh, investment i mean it was the peak of nasdaq, i think was the day of or the day before we closed on our on our money in early uh, two thousand. Which should have told me something, um, but uh, and then and then uh, and and we had a great time, a great brief you know year and a half time uh, doing this thing, and at the same time I I I was publishing this novel Turn of the Century, which uh, published about the near future and about people. Working in, in in the nascent uh, digital media industry, yeah, in some uh, ways lampooning the very thing that you were doing, correct, or about to do, right, about and, to. <laughs> and, and then, and, and in fact, I, I in in that novel, I, there's a fictional version of what I was about to do. <laughs> um, so, I two things: the appeal of kind of stepping into the through the looking glass into the fictional world what, what I had created was kind of perversely uh, uh, appealing, and this is gonna sound crazy in 2015 but in 1999 it felt it, it it you know when you know it was four years after Netscape the whole the digital thing had been going on for four years it felt like oh this is almost the end Michael Kurt yeah let's <laughs> get together and start a band before it's too late to start a band really there was this sense that huh. we were getting in on the you know before it was too late to be in in this world now which was again in retrospect so nutty I mean we did get in late on the, the first bubble. That's true. Yeah. Uh but it, but it did seem like wow, this this would be fun and this is a good idea and 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 let's try to do it. I mean, do you feel like it was a thing not quite
0: of its time or it was a thing that was sort of uh destined to not work out?
2: No, I think ahead of its time is more flattering than I mean it to sound. But it it's certainly in the sense that there was no way to sell advertising. There was almost no broadband. Uh, um, it, it was ahead of its time, in 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 a in a stupid way, um, um, but uh, no, I think uh, I think s- some number of years later, it, it 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 might well have made sense. But whatever, I I don't have any large regrets about it.
0: Yeah, it seems to have a similar, well, a similar quality to Spy in a couple of ways. One of which is you mentioned, sort of like initiating the recession of the eighties. Uh, with the, like, failure of advertisers to, you know, yeah. the advertisers sign to leave SPY. Similarly, failing to close your, or closing an yeah, yeah, investment yeah. round like the day of the, NAS- yeah. Before the NASDAQ. Yeah, off. so
2: watch what I do next,
0: because <laughs> that thing is about to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and not just that thing, that whole, the whole zeitgeist <laughs> is about to collapse in some fashion, because I'm entering it. The yes. radio's
0: held up yes. since it, you've entered radio. Shockingly,
2: shockingly, But the other thing
0: I was going to say about those, both of those, is that, um, again, the group of people looking back, you know, I'd forgot. I mean, I remember inside I knew people that worked there and I'd sort of forgotten all of the people that were connected to that who now you see their names everywhere. You yeah. know, David Carr being yeah, obviously yeah. like a huge example. How do you go about sort of like when you
2: start something like that, gathering up that group of people? Do you feel like they they naturally come to an no. idea? In terms of inside.com, you know, then by that point, um, you know, I'd been I'd been around been living in the city for a dozen years or more and and new people and uh, although we were doing something new, obviously publishing it digitally and, and, and had a had a certain sensibility we wanted to bring that we thought wasn't being done elsewhere um, it was a narrow, you know, it was covering the press, covering the movie business, covering the digital world. It, it was, it had its its defined beats in a way that made it easier to say, okay, who, who, are the, who are the best or potentially best people here and here and here and here? And by that point, we were, you know, and because it was 1999 and, and, and journalists began seeing that, whoa, this internet thing is really happening. Yeah. We could persuade people to leave, you know, the Wall Street Journal to come and work for us.
0: Yeah. Does it feel now to you like it did then? I mean, I don't mean Inside.com. I mean, does the environment
2: now feel to you like it did then? It's hard to know since I'm not in it. I'm more now just an observer, even though now that's virtually a generation ago. I think enough lessons from the bubble were learned that it's not, if we're in the middle of another frothy, over-enthusiastic, irrationally exuberant time, it's moderated or changed by virtue of the the experience and the lessons of Uh 1999-2000. But do I think uh, there are digital things that are insanely overvalued uh, for capricious reasons, not unlike was the case in 1999? For sure.
0: Yeah. And there's certainly the phenomenon of, uh, as you said, people being lured from very traditional jobs into... New places, whether it's BuzzFeed or Fusion or other places, yeah, Because they want to be a part of it.
2: Well, and also now the the places they're being lured from are uh, in a continuous slow motion implosion. So, uh, <laughs> right. in 1999, Wall Street Journal, you know, I mean, Wall Street Journal is still doing fine. But I'm, you know, I mean, the decimation of the print world uh, has made uh, people obviously more eager to go work for Fusion or BuzzFeed than they might have ten years ago worked for the equivalents. Right. So, what made you want to do radio they asked me oh. uh, I mean that, that <laughs> I, uh, I mean I, I was a listener to public radio and uh, but you know and hadn't really done uh, okay I guess you know I could have put journalist on my passport back in 1999 but I didn't I hadn't really done as a as a reporter very much journalism which means I really hadn't interviewed people that that much huh. and so it wasn't like I was skillful as an interviewer I certainly I'd only been on the radio when I was like promoting a book or talking about my magazine or something. So I, I didn't have the skill of doing it. And, and for, for whatever reason, the people who had this, you know, kernel of an idea for a show about culture and ideas and the arts and entertainment came to me and said, you know, we think you'd be good for this. And, and i literally when they first called thought they they had the wrong kurt anderson because i had been called in the past by people who thought i was a different kurt anderson so i i really i literally thought it was that uh but they so they had me try out and uh i had just uh finished and not yet published my first novel i had pretty much decided to not to to give up my regular gig at the new yorker and so i was sort of at a moment where i i, I wasn't looking for something new to do but i was as it turned out, open to it and, and uh, see, it turned out I could do it okay and uh, here we are. Has it been weekly the whole time? It has been weekly the whole time. Uh, we started out on uh, three or four stations, five stations maybe, including WNYC in New York uh, at the beginning of 2000, but it was weekly from the get-go and now we're on a couple hundred plus stations. But so, h-
0: how do you maintain uh, a show like that over that period of time in a weekly? I mean, that that's... I can imagine even after a few years that yeah. becoming a real grind I and mean, that's that's yeah. a, that's a that's a tough schedule. Yeah, it seems like something that it would it would wear you down or you yeah, could dull your curiosity. Even. Yeah,
2: it hasn't. I mean, I what people often say to me like, oh, you should you should do this daily. Or you should go on TV and do a talk show every day. Th- that would wear me down. And that would be, you know, a, an all consuming thing that I have no interest in doing, but. Um, an hour a week, the way we do it, which is, you know, a couple of long interviews by me, a couple of, you know, produced pieces. And as it turns out, it's just right for my metabolism. And because because when I started doing the radio show, I, I was already writing books at that time. And, and I as it turns out, I, I write best uh, in, in the morning, basically as soon as I can get at it, after I wake up until sort of after lunch. And so I was able to say, well, great, if you want me to do, try this, we want to start this radio show, great, but I'm going to need to have it happen in the afternoons because I'm going to keep being a writer, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's so it's worked out. I mean, it it's uh, and the 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 larger point is that there are five or six uh, incredibly talented, hardworking people who do all the heavy lifting uh, for the show, which means that all I have to do. I mean, this is the dirty little secret. After being a writer. For all these years, and an editor, which are hard, hard work, especially being a writer. I just say, yeah, that's an interesting story, or yeah. Th-. So there's a little bit of the editor in it, but then it's instead of writing a profile of Lily Tomlin, which you know you spend you spend days researching and then spend days with her and trying to arrange it, and then then spend days or weeks writing it. This is, you know, watch her movies, think about her, look at her work. And then spend an hour talking to her, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's just it's it's uh, I, I I I feel I still feel as though I'm getting away with something, uh, uh, and then all these talented people turn it into something that sounds good, a- and because it's weekly again, I pick and choose uh, who who I want to talk to. I, I'm nobody's telling me you have to talk to this person. We don't have such a pipeline as you do in a daily mm-hmm. radio or TV show. That you, you, God, you gotta fill it up. Who are you gonna have? You gotta. Well, maybe you didn't like that movie. Maybe you didn't like that book. Maybe you don't care about this musician. But you, get, you, you need to fill the time. I don't have that. And and often, you know, we'll say, oh yeah, maybe we'll have that person on. And then I see the movie and I go, mm, or the, watch the play or whatever. And 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 so it, it's it's like. I get to meet and talk to people and ask impertinent questions to people that have created something that I like or I'm fascinated by. Uh, no, it's it's uh, it's not. It is not a grind. And by the way, it's on every week. We don't do 52 original shows a year. So uh, right, yeah, that's
0: that's. I guess <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the other secret. Yeah, uh, from listening to the show, I, f- I feel like you. Uh, to me, you 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 seem like a voracious uh, consumer of all types of media plays movies books. like what are your what are your sort of uh, habits and are they driven by the show and sort of looking for things to do on the show or is it sort of your natural uh, way of being in the world and then you come across these topics
2: both it's both um I'm I'm fairly voracious I mean I'm not omnivorous I mean there are certain genres and forms that I you know I just don't have that much interest in or I can't pretend to know about or care about very much I am naturally pretty voracious and interested in artists, makers' work, and then because there's this show, and I have all these, you know, six people who can make up for my blind spots or my my ignorance or my elderliness or whatever to say, oh, you know, there's this thing called hip hop. You should really be looking at that. Um, uh, So it's guided both by uh, uh, my natural interests and tastes. I mean, it's all overwhelmingly controlled by my taste, which isn't to say everything by everybody on the show I love, but I either love it or like it a lot or am really, really curious about it. More of my, uh, for instance, uh, prose fiction diet is governed by uh, uh, reading books that I think I may want to have the author on the show or -hmm. or that we are going to. You know, I, I... too few of the books I read are entirely elective. Like, let me just read this novel w- without thinking. You know, would she be good on the show? Right. You yeah.
0: Know? I mean, you have limited time, so yeah, I'm sure yeah. you have to have to calibrate which ones you're yeah you're going to read. Um, well, you you had mentioned to me that you're working on a new book. Yeah. And I'm curious about it because you said that it was a nonfiction book.
2: It is. I had a deal for another book with my wonderful publisher, Random House, and and had started working on a novel, and they were all happy about that, and I w- wanted to do it, still wanted to do it, uh, and then I had lunch or breakfast with the publisher of Random House, who's a friend of mine, and and said, yeah, I'm working on this. Is I think it's going to be good, and I'm excited about it." But I had this idea for this nonfiction book, and and she got all excited, and. Uh, And if your publisher is all excited, and and I already thought it was a good idea, and and she made the point that it's kind of a timely and topical idea, and uh, would you do it first? And and I said, sure. So that's what I'm doing, Uh, and it's called Fantasyland. And as it's turned out, uh, because, of course, what it was – Two years ago, when I agreed to do that, is not exactly what it is now, but close. And 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 what? But what has turned out, in a way that I wouldn't have described it as then, is a history of America, a, a short history. I mean, it's not a. That sounds like it's going to be a, some nine hundred page thing, but yeah. it's it's not. It's 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 a expansive, but not long history of America from this particular angle, which is to say, what I find to be our defining predisposition toward dreamy fantasy, magical thinking, uh, I'm in the fiction delusion of various flavors and kinds from religion Mm. to fake breasts to Disneyland to Scientology. Um, and many, many, many more. It's my attempt at a theory of everything about America, basically. Is there a very timely modern example that's happening right now
0: that you find to be that lens?
2: Well, it's not mainly about politics, but politics figures in it. And, of course, when you have a cartoonish reality television star being at the top of the polls for the Republican nomination, who would obviously make a terrible president, but who's, <laughs> and whose campaign as... I think uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC said, is like a presidential campaign in a Batman movie, which I thought was a brilliant insight. <laughs> I, I suddenly think, yeah, that kind of goes with this. So that is an example. But but what we do, you know, because this happens not all at once, but gradually over 400 years, I mean, at first I thought, okay, this is going to be contemporary. Oh, no, I have to go back a little further. No, I have to go back a little further. And the threads, I, as it turned out, that's when it became a history. I had to go all the way back. And there are there are germs in our character and our history and our experience and our self-conception as americans that i think have led us here I, I you know it's not i don't want to make it crazily overdetermined but i think it's there much of what happened in the 60s and early 70s i mean we think we we think we have an we all have this sort of shorthand idea of the 60s and early 70s
0: mm-hmm.
2: that was a key moment uh, so i have a kind of uh, r- rueful reconsideration of of that time and and what it meant for the thing i'm talking about which is among other in a big way allowed uh, to i think an extreme degree everybody to believe, have their own truths you know in lots of ways because there was an establishment that actually had the gates and manned the gates and kept lots of good ideas out of out of the yard and the mainstream but kept lots of crazy ideas out of the yard and the mm-hmm. mainstream and in a, in a way that is too complicated to explain here today, the 60s had good stuff, no question. The 60s were very good to me. But uh, it was the, the moment when this set of things in the American character, this, this blue sky, anything's possible um, part of our character, was always in a, in a rough balance with the, the, the practical, Yankee, prudent part of ourselves. And I I believe that that, you know, forty, fifty years ago, uh that balance was lost and it kinda went our our, our American machine went kerplooey.
0: That means that now we're we're sort of existing in, in an, almost
2: entirely in fantasy? Well, or? it means that there can be lots and lots of people, lots and lots of educated people, for instance, who do not vaccinate their children because they're convinced that there's a conspiracy involving big pharma and the government to kill their children and cause autism, for instance. Right, right. Um, which is just not, I mean, yes, there have been conspiracy theories before, although not to the level there are today until the 60s. Um, and there has been suspicion of elites and all, all, all you know, the stuff existed, but it didn't have quite the standing uh, that my crazy idea is just as good as any other idea uh, that it does today. Until the last few decades,
0: hmm. I'm fascinated by the yeah. idea, but it also sounds incredibly ambitious to Pro- examine all of American history. And this. probably
2: crazily too ambitious. It is ambitious, and it took a. It has taken. It took a lot of time to figure out before I wrote word one. And and in the writing, as ever with the book, uh it takes a lot of time to figure out exactly how this dot connects to this dot. I, you know, I, you know, you have a sense in your head like, "Oh, here's a bunch of dots that nobody's ever connected before. I'm going to connect them. I I see how all these different dots connect." And you have that in your head, because, but you but in your in the way it's in your head, yeah, you know it's true, but you've never really worked it out. Mm-hmm. You know, which of course is is why one writes i i don 't know what I think really, or how I think about something or how something connects to something until I write through it that's mm-hmm. that causes my confused mushy subjective uh, yeah, i am i 'm on it I got it i <laughs> brain to 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 sort of figure things out and so both the the work ahead of time and then the work in the writing uh you know just tr- trying to figure out the the clearest lucid most lucid. Uh, and, and still entertaining and amusing uh, ways to connect these dots that don't necessarily seem uh, adjacent. So it's hard. I've, I, I've written nonfiction books before, but short nonfiction books. I've never mm-hmm. written a big one. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it may, maybe it's as hard as a novel. It's, it's hard. Do you interview
0: people for that? Like, how do you... Some, what does the research entail for something like
2: that? Uh, lots and lots and lots and lots of reading. Uh, lots of talking to people who know more about particular parts of this than I do and saying, what should I read? Or, what do you think of this idea? And uh, not so much interviews. There's a couple of pieces of journalism-ish things of talking to people that that are are chapters and scenes in it, but mostly reading and, and uh And and polemical in its way, because Mm -hmm. it's not just like, this is true. It's, I hate to tell you, America, but you may have jumped the shark, you know?
0: (laughs) Do you feel like that's something that you uh, personally went through in your own life? Like, did the 60s unhinge you in some way from, like, the reality that you grew up with in Nebraska uh, when you were smaller?
2: Well, I don't think so, but of course... Even if I were unhinged, I wouldn't. Would I? I took acid a lot. I, you know, I, I was, and, and I was, I was late. I mean, I was. I'm young enough that you know, I was only, you know, I was twelve in 1967. You know, I know of what I'm speaking because you know, I was a teenager, and and uh, in my early twenties, uh, in through the 70s. Uh, so no, I don't think I was unhinged, but I, but I, I can certainly write alternate histories of my life where I would have gone. You know in 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 dramatically different unhinged ways sure huh. um, you know druggishly or religiously or politically or otherwise yeah
0: it sort of takes me back to that that piece that i mentioned that you you wrote about clay felker because one of the things you describe in there is how some of the great magazines new york and the originally the new yorker were started by these uh, people who came from, uh, you know, more provincial backgrounds, Midwest or what have you, and then uh, came to New York in this sort of striving way to understand the city. Do you feel that way about yourself?
2: Yeah, I do. I'm no Harold Ross, uh, but but I do think there is something for magazine editors, for uh, also for comedy writers. Actually, I think people from the provinces, from Canada, from you know, I guess Canada is form of the provinces uh and come to New York, they are both dazzled by it because whoa, it's the thing I've seen in the movies and t v now it's real here I am, so there's that uh, lack of jadedness and and dazzle and uh, because they're outsiders, they don't give in to the dazzledness too much, they can see clearly in perhaps in ways that you know people who grow up here can't uh-huh you know there's this famous e b white uh, essay about New York that from which I quote pretty much once a week, in which he he talks about the three different kinds of people who live in New York. The third kind, he says, being those who, who who came here from elsewhere, mm. and and uh, that they bring a vitality to the city. And of course, when I read this, I thought, yeah, he's talking about me. Great, <laughs> uh, in a self-serving way. But he, he's got this phrase that those people, he says, are willing to be lucky, and and that people. Uh, you should not come to New York unless you're willing to be lucky, which is just such a wonderful phrase. Because of course, what willing to be lucky? Of course, I'm willing to be. Lucky. Who isn't willing to be lucky? But there, there is a subtle, almost Zen-like notion, I think, of of willing to be lucky, which implies a certain amount of optimism, or and in some cases, pathological optimism. But a certain amount of optimism, and and uh, if I play my cards right, Ness and 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 a sort of youthful enthusiasm. I just love
0: it. Do you feel like someone who, who sort of arrived in New York right now would have the same opportunity to be lucky that you had when you arrived here?
2: I hope so. I like to think so. There is the problem, of course, of you know equivalent apartments being twice as expensive now as they were when I arrived. Right. That's not good in terms of maximizing the pool of those people who are willing to be lucky being able to live here. And maybe New York is not necessarily the place. And indeed, uh, you know, provincial cities, for a variety of reasons, including technology and Starbucks, uh, have become (laughs) uh, places that are, you know, more amenable to the kinds of people who, when I was, you know, 22 and felt I had to move here, had to move here. Uh Yeah, I'm Panglossian enough and or... Agnostic enough to think that yeah, that the 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 gold the potential golden ages uh, haven't ended, despite the fact that America has jumped the shark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you look around and the things that claim to be descendants of spy? Do they
2: feel like it to you? Well, I mean, one of the. Claimed and true, I guess, descendants of Spy Gawker. I mean, at, at a certain moment, I thought Gawker was. I mean, Gawker is Gawker, and it's it is what it is. And and uh, I think that you know, I think Nick Denton has played it brilliantly, and that the people he and many of the people who work for him have felt uh, probably an analogous excitement. You know, another part of on the family tree or the Daily Shows and the and and. Comedy Central news of the world, no question, those people uh, who've created those shows feel like, wow, we, we got to do something amazing at this amazing time. So, yeah, th- I think those are good examples. I think, I think Colbert, the Colbert Report, the, the Daily Show industrial complex uh, are, is a good example of, of a thing that has had enormous influence. Yeah. Would you run a magazine again? I feel like every time there's an open editor-in-chief job. People
0: are like, maybe Kurt Anderson, it might be Kurt Anderson running it.
2: I doubt it. And I, I, I really don't think so. And and, and the, the last time it came up in a serious fashion was during uh, a previous owner of Newsweek magazine talked to me about running it. And, uh, and I thought about it and just decided, nah, it's not what I want to do. Yeah.
0: One thing I wanted to point out to you, which isn't even a question, but I just feel like you should explore it, is whether you in some way uh, came up with the name for Twitter, because I was reading Turn of the Century. I don't know, you have pro- probably don't I don't remember. know this.
2: I'm willing to take credit for whatever you're going to At say. At the <laughs>
0: beginning of it, the guy's kind of walking down the street, and his phone is buzzing in his pocket, and there's this line that says, I'll read it to you, the silent five-second-long so- five vibrating alert on the de- tiny device in George's pocket had given way to the up-and-down, do, mi fa mi re do chromatic tweet of the audible alert. Now, granted, it's talking about the, uh, the sound, so you could say, well... But
2: it's on his mobile device. I feel like you should...
0: Uh, okay. I don't I don't, need, I don't demand this. a huge royalty, just a little royalty. I feel like you t- you've taken this time to talk to me. I should give something to you, oh, there. which oh, is the possibility of riches that I'm you can I'm glad get to be reminded this.
2: of that. For a long time, I used to keep a file of... of uh, because, as you say, this novel was set in the near future. I used to keep a file when I would see news stories of things I had fictionally invented came true. I would keep a file of them. <laughs> Uh, so, what
0: what all was in there? I mean, there's a reality all, TV element in there. Well, there's
2: all there were all the reality TV elements. There was a uh, there was I had a thing about a, uh, a cemetery where there would be videos of the deceased that then came <laughs> to pass. A whole bunch actually. And then then I oh uh, oh a a children's version of Prozac or something. And then. A relative of mine angrily came up to me and said, You know, our children take, uh, pro- our four year old takes uh, Prozac. <laughs> I realized that was true. <laughs> um, um, so there were a bunch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for doing this. I really appreciate it. My total pleasure. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thanks to Kurt Anderson for letting me come over to WNYC and uh, get some time with him in the studio. Thanks to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks as always to our editor, Jenna Weissperman. If you hadn't checked out Jenna Weissperman behind the mic interviewing Lena Dunham, you should go back and listen to that episode. It's great. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, of course, as well as the message from Panoply, Prudential, Masterclass, and Realty Shares. With Realty Shares in just a few minutes, you can invest in professionally vetted real estate investments. Join thousands of other investors by registering at no cost at RealtyShares.com slash longform. We'll see you next week.